On this episode of the Pats Podcast, we walk into a bar and got a concussion. Stick around. Let's be better athletic trainers. <laughs> Before we begin, I'd like to thank today's sponsor, Rothman Orthopedics, for their continued support of Pats and athletic trainers in the state of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit them at www.rothmanortho.com. Erica, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to uh, talk with us today on the podcast um, um, about your research. Um, thank you for coming on. Thanks. I'm excited to be here and share a little bit about what we've been working on at Duquesne. Awesome. Before we get to that, let's uh, hear a little bit more about yourself, where you went to school, what you do for work, and how you got into uh, the topic of concussion research. Sure. I'd love to share. So I'm a Pennsylvania native. I'm from Erie, Pennsylvania, originally born and raised. I played a lot of sports as a kid, continued on to play softball at Mercyhurst University. Originally was pre-med, then heard about athletic training and started dual majoring, but by the end of my sophomore year, I was like all AT all the time. Um, so I got my undergraduate degree from Mercyhurst. Then I headed on to the University of Virginia for a pretty quick master's, where really my love for research kind of, I guess, was blossoming um, there. So after that, I decided, uh, at that point, I knew I was really interested in concussions. I had a lot of questions. So I decided to pursue a doctoral degree at Michigan State University with Dr. Tracy Kovacin, and then was lucky enough to land myself here in Pittsburgh, back in Pennsylvania, um, back in my home state. So right now in my sixth year as an assistant professor at Duquesne University. Go Duquesne. Um, I've been, yeah, go Dukes. I've been uh, researching concussions now for over a decade. My main work actually focuses more on the psychological, social, and cultural factors that impact how athletes experience the concussion. And uh, I think about the concussion experience starting from awareness, education, the messaging they're getting through social media, TV, and sports news, all the way through um, the unfortunate and if they do sustain a concussion in throughout their recovery. So I'm very much interested in, in patient-centered care and getting down to the individual level of how parents and athletes are feeling about this injury. This particular project regarding concussion policy actually started in the classroom. So this is my second or third year here at Duquesne and I asked my students, hey, bring in your clinical sites concussion protocol. And then I had a whole class that we were going to kind of analyze and, and use it to talk about concussion care. Um, I had a rude awakening when some of them didn't have a product to bring in. And then I kind of hit, hit myself on the head and said, here I am, concussion researcher, just assuming that this is a standard practice. Um, and it wasn't. So from there, I started just thinking about, like, okay, how many people have protocols, let alone what's in the protocol? How does it relate to the state law? Um, but ultimately, what it gets down to, uh, concussion policy, right? If we have well-developed policy that's based in evidence with all our best practice recommendations, having that in writing and taking the time to do that is going to lead to intentional practice, right? You're going to implement what you took the time to put together. And that's really how we're going to maximize patient outcomes, both from their physical, psychological, cognitive recovery, but also just their general experience with it. Um, and we see that with non-disclosure. You know, one of the factors we're seeing is that people that have sustained an injury previously, that's a reason why they don't report in the future. 
So we want to make sure that we're maximizing those outcomes. And the little caveat is it will also help protect against litigation, which is always a nice CYA for us. So um, that's kind of a big story of kind of where I'm, where I'm from, what I do, and how I got kind of to this project. Yeah, I mean, uh, Erica, do you, do you mind just maybe um, reviewing what the actual project we're talking about, um, maybe the title and, and um, you know, what you were actually looking at there, just for the viewers that, that have already read the article. I'm sure they have, but, you know, if they have. Yes. <laughs> sure. Okay, so I have it in front of me. Nice. Okay, so the title is Going Beyond State Law investigating school, high school sport-related concussion protocols. You can find this through the Journal of Athletic Training. It is open access, so you can go on and download a PDF for free. Be so there's no paywalls um, behind it. Yes, yeah. for sure. Yeah, so please, please check it out. Um, it's a, quite a lengthy article because I have lots of tables of information, which is going to be really helpful, I think, for um, what, what we do next with this. So um, the big gist of it was is we cast a wide net to Pennsylvania high schools. So we contacted everybody that was affiliated with the PIAA. So I think we ended up reaching out to that year, 757 high schools. A lot of sweat equity from my undergraduate research assistants went into those emails. Um, and it was a pretty simple request. We just asked, if you have a concussion protocol, a written concussion protocol, will you send us an electronic copy? And then we also asked them, do you have an athletic trainer for your sports, yes or no? And also, if yes, is it a full-time or a part-time individual? So from that, we ended up with a 50% response rate, which was amazing. Was not expecting yeah. that. Um, so of the 50% that responded, some declined. Some told us they didn't have a protocol. Some said they had one, but they never provided it to us. Um, but ultimately, our sample ended up being about 25% of all Pennsylvania high schools. So we have 184 protocols that then we assess the components of. And we um, kind of broke it down into state law components and additional best practice. That's kind of the big picture. Nice, yeah, so I mean, you know, what, what were some of the results and you know, what, what maybe was the most surprising thing that you found? Yeah, I mean, I think like the, the most exciting thing was just the willingness from the high schools to participate. So I did want to take a, a quick second just to shout out to the 184 schools that provided protocols and those that responded um, and the research team that made it all happen because a lot of sweat equity went into this one. Um, to be honest, I wasn't surprised by the results whatsoever. Um, it was pretty much what I was expecting to see. And a big caveat about this project, um, we just assessed what was on paper. And we know that that doesn't necessarily reflect what's actually happening clinically. So um, by no means I'm, I'm going to use this to say that we're not doing X, Y, and Z in Pennsylvania. It just simply wasn't in writing. Yeah. So yeah. really the results weren't surprising um, from what we saw. And we can kind of dig in on some of those um, here in a second. But the, the most ex exciting result was that we also then looked to see if there was difference between quality of protocols between part-time athletic trainers and full-time athletic trainers. Um, the answer to that is, of course, not surprisingly, yes. So schools that had full-time ATs had about 15 items versus only six items for schools of part-time. So I think that's just another feather in our cap uh, to show our worth as athletic trainers. And, um, and this isn't anything against those that are working part-time. That's situational, more than likely. Um, but having that continuity of care of someone there full-time all the time that can integrate into the community 
understand the resources, the barriers, and the needs of that specific sports community, and then make a protocol for them is where we need to be headed. So like that was super exciting to see. And just, again, not surprised by that. We know that. Yeah. Um, but now we have some more data to support the utility of an athletic trainer in this very important injury space being concussion. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think um, I agree with that. You know, we, unfortunately, we do have a lot of part-time per diem um, folks, you know, and not, again, not nothing wrong with that as part of your question, but, you know, I think we get more towards the providing coverage with the per diem part-time people and not providing care. Right. And I feel like that's the really big thing of athletic training that we're trying to go away from. Right. We're not just there to cover things. We're there to provide actual care and without a full-time person there to, to, like you said, integrate within the actual community, it's really hard to provide that, that holiday care that we're looking to do. Yeah. And I think, I think this reflects that. Perfectly. Absolutely. Because um, again, I wouldn't necessarily expect someone working part time, providing part time coverage, to develop a site specific protocol for their that clinical site. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Unless they're going to pay you knowing. by the hour to sit down and do that, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but I can I can share some of like the big findings um, when looking just at the state law. So those that haven't sat down and I don't know spent like three hours analyzing our state law, like I have. Um, we have some mandatory components to it. So I was just going to list those off, get to my fun level table. Okay, so our mandatory components are education for athletes and parents, removal from play if a concussion is suspected, no return to play until medical clearance, written medical clearance is provided, completion of concussion management certification for coaches, and penalties for coaches that violate the other tenets of the law. In total, we only had 25% of responding schools that fulfilled all five of those items. So ultimately, that's kind of a deficiency. But the good news is, is when it came to return to play and that written clearance, a lot of schools did have that element. Where we fell short just thinking about our state law is that penalties for coaches element. And really, we were lacking, too, in the education section uh, section as well. But um, globally, people weren't including all of those pro those elements into their actual protocols. Uh, but Erica, here's another Erica, problem. For the, for the, yep. um, the penalties, is that written in the state law as just a, a general open-ended penalties? Or is there specifics to that? Or that's up to the school to kind of decide what that is? So they, the language within it dictates that the school has flexibility, but they give three three tiers of recommendation for those. Okay. Yeah. So okay. they nice. give the recommendation. I, I don't work at the high school level, so I, if yeah. you want to talk NCAA rules, I, I'm, I'm here, but I'm not as well versed in the state uh, uh, high school legislature. Yeah, like I said, I've spent a lot of time staring at it and analyzing it. Um, but yeah, they do give a suggested three levels of penalties okay. for coaches. That's helpful, yeah. Okay, yeah. go ahead. Sorry. No, no, that's great. Um, I just think a big problem is, right, our state law was passed in 2011, implemented in 2012. It's a decade old. Yeah. Wow, like that cool. is, yeah, when you sit back and think about it, um, that's a long time, especially in the concussion research world. Absolutely. Like once, you, once you get like four or five years out now in concussion, like you're obsolete, um, yep. some of that information. Yep. So it was one of those things, I think, that all the states put one in and checked the box. Um but what does that checkbox actually mean? And I think that's something that's like, 
for here, it's a barriers. We have no infrastructure to A, help schools actually implement this. Um, and those that don't know, our state law only covers school sanctioned sports. It doesn't cover recreational use sport whatsoever. Um, but we have no infrastructure really to support the success of the implementation of these, let alone some type of feedback loop. Like the NCAA has one now where you're getting your protocols assessed for the Power Five conferences, and then other schools can all swap to take advantage of that. But we don't have any type of feedback loop. So it's like we have it, but what does that actually mean? How is it actually being implemented, let alone um, enforced or assessed? So um, these state, and that's true pretty much of all state laws at this point, they're decade old. Um, and it might be just some time to sit back and, and think about what are we actually getting. Um, they were novel uh, 10 years ago, but the novelty's kind of worn off, even though they produce some great outcomes. That's been shown clearly um, that we've increased our diagnosis, which means we're increasing identifications. Um, just some good food for thought with the state law specifically. So compared to the other like regional states um, around Pennsylvania, has there been any of this research conducted um, through their organizations or is there anything published uh, information about how they're doing? Yeah, there's a little bit of literature. It's pretty thin to be honest. And again, just talking about state laws, that's what a lot of these other um, studies have looked at. So there is one specifically that was done in New York. So they had 47 New York school districts and they kind of broke it down county versus city school districts, but they had 47 schools. Um, and ultimately we fell a bit short compared to the frequencies of implementation for those state law elements compared to New York. Um, we were closest on that return to play clearance. Again, that's, that's probably like the highlight of what we do is that return to play um, stepwise progression and the written medical clearance, that's where we were pretty similar. Um, we were also, there's another study um, from a group that came out of Ohio that sample of 79 US high schools. So it was more general across the whole entire country. And again, we were still a little bit more deficient on some of those items such as education um, specifically, but we were kind of similar with the return to play being a strength. So, um, but this is definitely something that needs to be considered state to state uh, and at the individual school level too. So it's kind of hard to really do a huge comparison. And again, the infrastructure could be completely different. I'm not super sure about all the resources available in New York, um, but compared to them, there were areas we were definitely a little bit lower frequency wise in what was included in the written protocols. So one of my favorite yeah, parts so, about, uh, go ahead, Adam, I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. So one of my favorite parts about the um, about how you set up the article is you, you not only looked at the seven uh, mandated um, kind of tenants in the, the PA uh, literature, or I'm sorry, um, Safety and Youth Support Act, but you also added 60 other components to look at to kind of assess the, the quality of the, um, um, the sport-related concussion uh, protocols. And then you outlined everything in what five five tables, and yeah, so we have a bunch of tables that break down pretty much starting from like pre-participation assessment, awareness, prevention, um, baseline testing, on-field assessment, off-field through recovery and treatments. Yeah, so we we were tried to be as comprehensive in these different domains of care. I mean, if if you really when you when you kind of look at it, kind of gloss over it, you you pretty much have given us a roadmap on how to develop our our protocols to meet 
all the not only the state um, state mandates, but also just best practice in concussion, which is really what I took a lot from this article, and I thought it was fantastic because. I remember looking back for when I was um, setting this up at one of the high schools I worked at, I was like, yes, let me see how I did. And yeah, I missed a ton of the best practice um, stuff with, uh, with within the past. And I'm just like, man, I usually do everything by the book and I still missed a few. Um, so I, Don't I guess, be hard on yourself. <laughs> so I guess where I'm going with this is let's talk about all, some of the other um, things that you found um, through best practice as well. Yeah. So like I said, don't, don't feel bad. I'm like a mega nerd about concussions. So, um, and the people that helped me develop this all think about concussions all the time too. Um, so some of the, again, we tried to cut all the domains um, and we use the NCAA protocol template to help us identify those domains. And then we kind of filled in basic information and used a bunch of different resources. Um, but yeah, we pretty much looked at Again, everything from the front to the end of the injury experience. Um, again, highlights really were like the stepwise progression implementation for physical return to play, that written medical clearance, um, the use of neurocognitive tests was pretty high. And all of those things we would have expected to see that because those are some of the elements that were around 10 years ago. Some of the newer things like return to learn, vestibular and ocular type assessments, we didn't, oh, and prevention which is a huge another um, kind of have a hole to go down. But some of those things that we don't have great literature on or now we're just now creating that literature and doing those studies, those were the ones that we saw deficiencies. Um, and again, that's to be expected. Um, but it also does kind of highlight, especially when you think about return to learn, like we've been talking about that now for five, six, seven years pretty seriously. Um, only a third of protocols even mentioned that academic accommodations of any type or adjustments might be needed. So I think that's just a really good, and we talk about this in, in research all the time of how can we get our message that through our studies to the clinician level and how can we get it to the implementation level? So Phil, the fact that you said I've given you a roadmap, that's exactly what I want a clinician to say when they read this. Um, from this, I've developed a course project for my students where they use that roadmap. I give them that in rubric form, all of those items, and they have to create a protocol for the current clinical site that they're at. I'm working um, with my colleagues to adapt that into a quality assessment that we could distribute to clinicians so that they could assess their own protocols. The pipe dream, I think, is maybe to do some workshop at PATS every year, every other year, to create a space where some of us are available to solely focus on protocol development using some of the tools we've established. Um, and all of these things, um, in case you're unaware, we're going to be getting a concussion gap statement soon. Um, that's basically going to fill in some more information off of the 2014 position statement for concussion. So some of the things in that rubric, I'm going to be updating and adapting based upon those new recommendations. So that's what I hope to, to do moving forward. And that's how I hope that clinicians are going to use it. A, help you develop your protocol if you don't have one. Um, or B, a quality assessment that you could do every few years to strengthen whatever you currently have. So thank you for picking up that that was kind of, um, I really want to think about clinical implications and getting this message to clinicians so they can actually use it something. So thanks for picking that up. It means I did my job. One thing that I found interesting, and, or like you said, not shocking was the return to learn. Um, I feel like 
like you said, there's not good research on that. And so it's hard to really write a policy whenever it's so individualized for each athlete. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on the return to learn and, and maybe just some general concepts that you might include. Yeah, so I think from like the bare bones, if you kind of check out the, the table section on this, it's just making people aware, like making parents and children aware right after the injury, hey, we might take a different approach with school for a little bit. And that's a big maybe, not every athlete needs it. Um, but research shows between 70 and 80% of athletes, both at the college and high school level, report deficits related to learning. Um, so odds are it's going to be good for them to at least know that that might be needed. The second thing that should really, um, I think, that we can do a better job of is working interprofessionally with the school psychologists at the high school level. Um, they're the people that really help with the academic needs of the students. So the development of the concussion management team that, again, includes athletic trainers, team physicians, other neuropsychologists that might be involved, the school uh, psychologist, the school nurse, teachers, and getting teachers involved in the process. Um, that's a big component of this. It's just developing that team and finding those advocates and finding those resources. Um, and then as far as kind of like the implementation of that team, there is the Pennsylvania program called Brain Steps. So we're one of two states in the U.S. that actually has a program established statewide that you can take advantage of to help you develop concussion management teams for students in general that have acquired a brain injury of some sort, not just sport related, but it's supposed to be more inclusive of any student. So we have a program in Pennsylvania wow. that's already been established. Um, and that's a big thing that they talk about is that concussion management team and that establishment. So there's resources available to help with that. We're lucky here in Pennsylvania that it's, it's a pretty well oiled and we've had it for quite a few years now too. Um, but there is a ton of new literature coming out on return to learn, but bare minimum, just to let people know that they might be impacted because we want those adjustments to happen because if a student athlete does bad on a test, does bad on an exam, that hurts their overall grade in the course, that impacts their GPA, that impacts a lot of steps down the road for them professionally and personally. So getting that care right from the get-go, letting them know it might be needed is really important. Yeah. So just really just recognizing that and, and educating them on what their options are, really. Right. Um, you mentioned school psychologists. Is that normal for, for most high schools to have a, a, a staff psychologist? Is it really? Okay. Yeah. So I've been gonna, out of high school for too long. So. Yeah. They might go by a different name, the school counselors, but I'm pretty okay. sure it's required. Uh, so the individuals with students that have like ADHD or learning disabilities or challenges, yeah. they would be managing all accommodations. So there must yeah. be some sort of trained individual to help manage that within the school district. Yeah. So no, that makes somebody, sense. Somebody, yeah, somebody is available. Yeah. yeah. Again, you know, at the college level, we have a whole department that you know handles uh, accommodations and and access and disability. So. Um, yeah, I'm just curious, again, just me not knowing what the high school setup looks like. So that, that's good to know, to, to really point people in the right direction, have those those resources available at the time of injury is going to be really impactful for that athlete long term, right? You know, if they're trying to go to class every day with a headache and can't concentrate, like that's going to impact them long term. So um, I think that is super valuable and making sure that we have that in our protocols is, is going to be huge. Did your research um, put any correlation to employment type? as far as the athletic trainer goes, like school district hired versus um, outreach based? Yeah, unfortunately we did not ask that question. Okay. 
Um, but interestingly, in the protocols, we could kind of tell the schools that were like all contracted through the same hospital system, right? Okay. Because ultimately that hospital system dictated their protocols. So there were some things that we could kind of see like that, but um, we actually didn't assess that. It's one of those things like, only wish I would have thought of that. Um, but I'm, I am happy we at least got that full part-time. But yeah, we didn't actually look at like contract type or employment structure. Okay. Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah. I've, I've always I think there that. could be pros and cons to both ways. Yeah. Yeah. Because you do, if you do have like, you know, a big overarching um, company that, that has a solid protocol, well, then, you know, you're, you're kind of don't have to worry about that but kind of um, at the same time you might have really good uh you know full-time athletic trainers that really want to deep dive into this stuff and have a good protocol as well so yeah it could go either way so erica you know i would just ask you know maybe if if there's like one or two big key takeaways from your research what what would they be what what big message would you want our listeners to to know the big messages um number one that everyone's doing a fine job like i have no doubt that again this reflects what's on paper and knowing the rigor in the schedules of a high school athletic trainer you're all doing a fine job because the last thing you're probably worried about is this written document uh, based upon all of the different ways you're being pulled daily. Um, and again we definitely recognize there's a lot more happening in practice than what's on these pieces of paper um, but I think the big thing to consider, the big take homes, um, that this could be used to help, again, show the worth of yourself at a high school setting. Um, but also, we need to, a, a, if you don't have a protocol, you should develop one, and you can feel free to reach out to me, and I can give you some resources that I'm working on. And two, we need to be thinking about those written documents and how they're guiding our intentional practices and what that means to patients. And that goes across the board for all of these different injuries and illnesses that we're working with now that could be catastrophic. Um, and that reassessment portion, one, get established at least every year, as I would recommend, based upon the speed in which concussion literature comes out, to do some sort of reassessment of quality of that and update it. So that would be kind of the big take-home points. Return to learn. We need to beef that up. Return to play. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, because that approach has been um, relatively working for the safety of our student-athletes to so keep on the path. Yeah, love that. Phil, what else you got? I think we got the lightning round. I think that was fantastic. All right. All right, yeah. so, Erica, thank you again for uh, talking about your article. Um, I, I've already said it, but I think it's um, an excellent resource and uh, something I wish I would have had about 10 years ago. So fantastic job on the on the topic and and the execution of it. So the lightning round, um, you can go into depth as much as you want with any of these questions, or a little bit more on the personal side. But uh, first one, if you're not already doing it, what is your dream job? So my dream job would be um, selling popsicles and ice cream on the beach. <laughs> Um, specifically down in Cape Canaveral, Florida, I did a summer internship the year I turned the summer I turned 21 um, when I was still an undergrad at the rehab work at the Kennedy Space Center, and we went to the beach like every day. And I just think that I would love to sell ice cream on the beach. They do a bring people joy in the heat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you're when you're not selling ice cream on the beach, what else do you do for fun? Um, I'm an avid knitter. 
Okay. So I got really into knitting during the pandemic. Um, I also enjoyed gardening, which I feel like is you turn 30 and you must have a garden. I think it's like a requirement. <laughs> so we're doing some veggie gardens and I'm really into roses. So that's kind of my new thing. And I chase my three-year-old son, Levon, around quite a bit as nice. well. Mm. So. Yeah, that is fun, but it will also keep you very busy. <laughs> yes, keeps me on my toes for sure. What inspires you? Um, this this is a really tough question uh, when you ask somebody this. So um, thanks for throwing this one at me. Um, I get inspired by a lot of different things, but personally, my family inspires me a lot. Um, starting from my parents that gave me all the all the freedom and opportunity to do what I wanted to pursue and to support me. Um, and now my husband and my son um, doing whatever they can to support me too. So that's that I feel just very passionate about um, having those opportunities. And professionally, I get a lot of energy from my AT families, both my past families and my network and my present. Um, and I would be at fault if I didn't say that we have an exceptionally talented pool of concussion researchers within my field of study that inspire me daily. And I'm honored to be a part of that community and work alongside them. And um, that's been a real joy in the scholarship side is just meeting so many different people from all over the place and working with them. So I think those are my, my big inspirations, family and community. I love that. Love that. Love very, very well said. Another, another deep one. Um, you know, what, what does athletic training mean to you? Yeah. So like we said, I didn't initially coming out of school of high school know that I wanted to be an athletic trainer. I kind of fell towards it. Um, and felt like this gravitational pull in that direction. Um, but I've really found it to be one of the greatest gifts in my life. Um, it led me to meeting my husband. If I wasn't an athletic trainer, I would have never have met him, right? Um, and really, it's brought me a lot of abilities to share the privileges I've had in my life and use those things to help other people. I think a lot of ATs, right, we get into the profession because we want to help people. Um, and I get the honor of helping people um, in multiple ways. I get to help people in the classroom by guiding my students and teaching them. I get to collaborate, collaborate with my peers. And, you know, my research has reached all across the globe now. So um, and I'm not going to slow down anytime soon. So I'm hoping to continue to spread that reach um, to help as many people as I can with my work. So and, and really without ethnic training, I wouldn't have any of it. So, yeah, that's so cool. So cool. Love, love the, the little line there. Your research has gone across the world. That, that's a cool thing to say, right? Like people, you know, you've yeah. impacted not just the local community, but the, the, the entire country, the whole world. Um, so that's awesome. Well, Erica, um, you've been awesome to chat with. And I just want to say thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to share your expertise with us. Um, if listeners have any questions for you, um, any way that they can reach out? Yeah, so you can find me on the Duquesne University Athletic Training Program websites pretty easily. I'm also on Twitter, and you can also check me out on Google Scholar. I have a profile that can link you right to me. So lots of ways. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, Erica, thank you again for taking time for your busy day. And I want to say thank you to Rothman Orthopedics for sponsoring this episode. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Remember to like, subscribe, share, tweet, post, comment, and DM. Until next time, I'm Adam Richmond. And I'm Philip Hensler. And this was the Pats Podcast.